invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 as we continue to work our way slowly through the book of Acts. And this morning we will hear Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon our God in prayer. Father, we do ask now that by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our minds and our hearts, that we would grow in our understanding of your word, but so that we would grow in our affection for Christ and our love for one another and in our sense of urgency to go into the world and do what you have called us to do. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the holy, authoritative, inerrant, and sufficient word of our God. If you could ask Jesus one question, what would you ask him? Hopefully you would come up with Better questions than my kids did last night when I posed this same question to them during our family worship. Mainly, they just stared at me blankly. Corin said, you know, Dad, I'm sure I'd come up with something in the moment, but right now I'm a total blank. So we didn't have many good questions. But what would you ask the Lord? Maybe it would be a personal question about your past or your future. Maybe it would be a theological question. Finally, ask Jesus to explain to you the, the right millennial view or ask Jesus, Jesus, are, are you a five-point Calvinist? Because this, some of this just doesn't sound right to me. What do you think that you need to know in order to live well and follow Jesus? Well, on the 40th day after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples had time to ask Jesus one last question. 
One last question, which the disciples believed they needed to know in order to live well and follow Jesus. So we will consider the disciples' question, Jesus' answer, and God's promise, all of which we find in these few verses. And as we do, we will discover that what we want to know is not always what we need to know in order to follow the Lord. And we can rest assured that Jesus has told us what we need to know in order to live well and follow him. So first is the question. Jesus, as we've already learned, appeared to his disciples multiple times over 40 days after his resurrection, proving to his disciples that he was alive and teaching them about the kingdom of God. So when they come together one last time, the disciples ask Jesus a final question about the kingdom. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what exactly are they asking him? Well, the key word is restore. This is the verb found throughout the Old Testament for the expectation that one day God would restore Israel to his former glory in the last or the latter days. You read through Jeremiah 30, and there's all this language of God will restore Israel and Judah, who had been divided. He would restore their fortunes. He would restore their land. He would restore to them a king who would be one of them, not a foreigner, but a Jew. For the Jews, this was the restoration of the glory Israel knew under the reign of Kings David and Solomon when Israel was free, safe, and prosperous in their God-given land. But in Jesus' day, Israel was still divided. After Solomon, the kingdom had split in two, ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. Because of their sin, in Jesus' day, the Jews still, in one sense, lived in exile. God had exiled the northern kingdom at the hand of the Assyrians, the southern kingdom at the hand of the Babylonians. Yes, God had brought his people back to the land, but many were still scattered, and those who lived in Israel did not have their own king. They lived under Roman rule. So in Jesus' day, Israel is still not free. She is not an autonomous nation. And so the Jews were still longing and hoping for God's promise to be fulfilled. When God said in Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
Israel would once again be a prominent mountain in the world, the chief of nations. So Israel was hoping for this restoration, believing one day Israel would be free and autonomous, no longer oppressed by other nations, prominent in the world and dwelling peacefully in its own land. And so the disciples are asking Jesus, are you going to do all of that right now? And Jesus had been speaking to them about the kingdom, so their question was understandable. Some argue that in his answer, Jesus ignores their question, dismisses their question, or even rebukes them for their question, but I think that is assuming too much. Jesus does answer the question they are asking, but he does so in a way that clarifies and to some degree corrects their understanding and misunderstandings about the kingdom of God. So his answer clarifies and corrects their understanding of the nature of the kingdom, the extent of the kingdom the timing of the kingdom, and the mission of the kingdom. So we're going to look at each of these. Number one, they, they needed a better understanding of the nature of the kingdom. The disciples, like most Jews, thought of God's kingdom predominantly in nationalistic and political terms. For them, the restoration of the kingdom meant the restoration of Israel as a free and independent nation in their homeland. And at that time, it meant the overthrow of Roman rule. But Jesus reminds them that the kingdom is predominantly understood in spiritual and relational terms. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We've already seen in the earlier verses the intimate connection between the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the Holy Spirit. This word about the Holy Spirit is probably an allusion to Isaiah 32, when Isaiah says, for the palaces forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Jesus reminds his disciples, as we saw last week, that the coming of the kingdom is, in one sense, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It is first and foremost a spiritual and saving reality, not a nationalistic and political reality. So Jesus did not just come announcing some future far-off kingdom in his ministry. He announced a present kingdom in his ministry. When the Pharisees earlier in Jesus' days, before his death, had asked Jesus this exact same question, when is the kingdom coming? Jesus answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. 
For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus says that because the king was in the midst of them. The promise of the kingdom's restoration, therefore, was not the promise of a restored national and political state in Israel. The promise of restoration was the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ and the reception of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus are inseparable in the biblical author's mind. This is clear at every point the kingdom of God is mentioned in the book of Acts. The book begins with two references to the kingdom of God in chapter 1. It ends with two references to the kingdom of God in chapter 28. And this framework, these bookends, shows that in, in Luke's mind, everything that he's describing is the coming of the kingdom. But what does that look like? Well, in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, Luke says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It looked like faith in Christ. Acts 14, 21 and 22, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And in Acts 28, 31, when Paul is imprisoned in Rome, he is there proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's what the coming of the kingdom looks like to Luke. And so in those verses, we hear the clear connection between the kingdom of God and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God, therefore, is, is not in this sense just God's universal rule over all creation, because that has always been true. That did not begin with Jesus' ministry. Neither is the kingdom some ideal moral order or socio-political reality that after certain elections you can say, oh, the, the kingdom has come. We, we now have a different moral order. The kingdom of God is God's rule established in the fulfillment of his covenant promises. So when you think of the kingdom, think of God fulfilling his saving promises. Think of God's redemptive rule in Jesus Christ. And so we are not all in the world in the kingdom. This is why Jesus says you must enter the kingdom. And to enter the kingdom is to believe the gospel and receive Jesus as your Savior and King. To enter the kingdom is to humbly acknowledge your sin, to trust and depend upon Christ for your forgiveness and cleansing, and now live in joyful obedience to Christ as your King. So faith in Jesus is entrance into the kingdom of God. 
This is why I say it is relational as well as spiritual, because it's all about your relationship to Christ the King. He is the kingdom. Because if there's no king, there is no kingdom. So they needed to better understand the nature of the kingdom. They also needed to better understand the extent of the kingdom. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They ask him. So in the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be his treasured possession. The law and promises were first given to the Jews. So Paul asks in Romans 3, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And later he says that to the Israelites belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And that is still true. But Paul also is clear that to be a true Jew is not first about your ethnicity. It's a spiritual reality. So he says again in Romans 3, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And again, he says in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Israel there for Paul is not merely an ethnic reality, it is a spiritual reality. And therefore, while the kingdom of God was to begin with ethnic Israel and it belonged to them, it was never God's plan to end it there. That was not the full extent of the kingdom. The fulfillment of restoration was not just the kingdom coming to ethnic Israel. God's saving plan was always a global plan. And so Jesus reminds his disciples of this when he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus here is alluding to two more passages in Isaiah to help clarify and correct his disciples' understanding. The first passage is Isaiah 43, in which God twice tells Israel, You are my witnesses. Israel was God's chosen people, but they were to witness to the world of this relationship that others might come, see, submit, and worship the same true God. The second text Jesus alludes to is Isaiah 49, 6. Where God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. 
I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So in one sense, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel is the restoration of Israel's global mission. They were always to be the, the center from which the law, the word of God goes forth to the end of the world. The disciples were concerned about the kingdom coming to Israel. Jesus is concerned with the kingdom going out from Israel. I'll explain this more with the timing of the kingdom, but with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom is being restored to Israel. Pentecost is the public declaration and manifestation of the next stage of kingdom come. Luke describes that there are Jews in Israel at the time of Pentecost from all over the known world. The kingdom is coming to Israel. The gospel was to be preached to the Jew first, Paul says. But that was just the beginning. For the kingdom of God is not mono-ethnic. It is multi-ethnic. It is universal in extent. Not meaning every single individual in the world will enter the kingdom, but meaning the kingdom will include people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. So the witness begins in Jerusalem. Think here, the full ethnic Jews. Then it goes to Samaria and Judea. Samaritans were part Jewish, part Gentile. And then finally to the end of the earth to the Gentiles. Now that verse, verse 8, really is the outline for the rest of Acts. You'll notice this is how Luke tells us the story. So in verse 12, the disciples go back to Jerusalem and they wait there for the Holy Spirit. Then in chapters 2 through 7, you see the gospel spreading among the Jews in Jerusalem. But in chapter 8, they are persecuted, and so now the Christians have to start spreading out. So later we'll see why is persecution a good thing and not necessarily something to be feared. So in chapter 8 now, we read that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So in chapters 8 through 12, the gospel is now spreading in Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch to now bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so chapters 13 through 28 see the gospel being spread to the end of the earth. For the story ends with Paul in Rome proclaiming the gospel. Now Rome wasn't the end of the earth. But at that time, in one sense, it was the center of the known world. So the gospel coming to Rome means the gospel now can go everywhere. So the apostles do exactly what Christ sent them into the world to do. Acts is the story of Jesus completing the kingdom's foundation through the apostles' spirit-empowered preaching. The point is that kingdom restoration, again, had nothing to do with the reestablishment of Israel as an independent nation. 
It had everything to do with all Israel being gathered into the kingdom as the gospel was preached from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. And we need to remember this even today. For there has always, always been one people of God who were given one covenant and covenant promises. And what we see is that that one people has expanded. There are not two sets of people, ethnic Israel and the church. It's not two sets of promises, all of these physical material promises to Israel and spiritual promises to the church. You read Romans 11 and you hear Paul say, there's one tree representing God's people. You can either be cut off from it or grafted into it, not two trees. And so the people of God is always those who have faith in God and his promises, which is faith in Christ, for Christ is the fulfillment of those promises. As we learned in Hebrews, the covenant promises were never intended to end in the land of Canaan. Canaan was always a type of a greater promised land, which is the new heavens and the new earth. At the present time, the kingdom of God is not national, it is not political, it is not geographical, it is not monoethnic. It is spiritual, it is covenantal, and it is universal in the sense that it is to reach the end of the world and include people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We must understand the nature of the kingdom. We must understand the extent of the kingdom. Number three, we need to understand the timing of the kingdom. Because the disciples' question was primarily about timing. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It was a question about consummation, about completion. The disciples realized Everything that God promised in the Old Testament hasn't happened yet. We, we haven't received this in full. So when are we going to experience this full, final reality that God promised us? Well, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells his disciples a series of parables about the kingdom. And he tells them these parables because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That it was just going to be all at once. The promise comes in one nicely wrapped package that they can unwrap. But his parables explained that the kingdom would come in stages. And so Jesus' answer to the disciples about timing is, is twofold. First, he tells them, timing is up to God, and God has not revealed everything to you. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Jesus says, I'm, I'm not going to tell you when, not because God doesn't know when, but because he just isn't going to tell you. It's not one of the things you need to know. Oh, it's, it's what we want to know, but it's not what we need to know. God has ordained everything. He has not revealed everything. The times are set, but they are also secret. 
God has not told us when the king will return and complete the kingdom. No one knows the day or the hour, which is why it still boggles my mind how much time Christians spend trying to predict when Jesus is coming back. Stop it. You don't know. It's just my own little pet peeve. But second, in alluding to these various passages in Isaiah, Jesus does in part answer their question about the timing. Because the kingdom is not entirely future. God is already fulfilling what he has promised. The kingdom, the coming of the kingdom is not all at once, but it has come even as it is still to come. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees that the kingdom was in their midst. And Jesus tells them how to enter the kingdom, which means it's got to be here to some degree if, if we can enter it. It has come. It's just not complete. So the kingdom essentially comes in three stages. The kingdom is initiated. It is inaugurated with Christ's incarnation. It first comes in his life, death, and resurrection. So stage one is kingdom inauguration through the king's humiliation. But then there's a decisive turn when Jesus dies and rises again. The king is transferred from a ministry of humiliation to one of exaltation. He ascends to receive his crown and sit on his throne. So stage two is Christ ruling from heaven in the period between his resurrection and his return. And the third and final stage will be his return when he completes the kingdom. Jesus, therefore, tells the disciples, you don't need to worry about when stage three is going to happen. You need to know how to live in stage two. We need to live in light of the kingdom already come and leave the kingdom's completion to God's good and fixed timing. And Jesus also, in this way, directs our attention away from the timing of restoration to the means of restoration. Because timing has nothing to do with us, but the means has everything to do with us. For kingdom restoration comes through gospel proclamation. Which brings us to number four, the mission of the kingdom. What are we supposed to do while we wait for Christ to come and complete the kingdom? What is the specific task Jesus has given his people? Well, he says, you will be my witnesses. A witness is someone who testifies in a legal matter or more generally just is affirming or attesting to something. And this first and foremost applied to the apostles. The apostles are the you. From Luke's perspective, as we'll see over time, the apostles completed their mission, witnessing from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. So this is first and foremost directly spoken to the apostles. Our witness is analogous to theirs, but it is not identical. We are not 
eyewitnesses of the resurrection. We do not have the exact same power and authority that Christ gave to the apostles. There are no more apostles. I'll talk about this more next week. There is no apostolic succession. When the apostles died and they completed their ministry, that part was over. There's another part, but that was their task. Their job was to lay the foundation upon which Christ would build his church. Their witness to Jesus is the rock Jesus says he will build his church upon. Paul says in Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the apostles had to lay the foundation. And they did it. The foundation is complete. We do not add to it. We do not need to fix it. Our mission is, in one sense, standing upon that foundation and telling others about the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ. For even though we are not the authoritative witnesses the apostles were, we are still witnesses as we depend upon the same Holy Spirit and preach the same gospel. The mission of the church, therefore, is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And we know this applies to more than just the apostles because Jesus' promise in the Great Commission goes to the end of the age. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Clearly, that will go beyond the lifespan of the apostles. So our mission is to tell the world about the king and his kingdom. So let me be clear. The mission of the church is not the same thing as Everything Christians are to do in obedience to God. The mission is a specific task we have been given, recognizing there's many other ways that we are called to live in faithful obedience to Jesus. So if everything was mission, in one sense, nothing would be mission. Have you seen the Mission Impossible movies? It's not everything Tom Cruise did. He had a specific task that he had to complete. So the mission of the church is not everything Christians must do in obedience to God. We are all called to do good works, to do justice, acts of kindness, mercy, to serve others. We all must live in light of Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? (laughs) To do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. But the specific task Jesus has given his people is to make more disciples, more Christians who will live that way, teaching them 
all that Christ has commanded. So do you hear that? The, the mission is Matthew 28 to produce Micah 6.8 people who will go out and, and live as Christ has called us to live. Neither, then, is the church's mission to do everything that God is doing in the world. God is making a new creation. We, we aren't part of everything he's doing in the world. Our job is to preach the gospel. So, I think this definition is a good one. I didn't make it up. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. Now, does that mean that we all are called to be missionaries pastors, or in some kind of full-time ministry. And that if you're not in full-time ministry, well, you're just a lesser, second-class Christian. Your work doesn't really matter, and you're useless. No, it doesn't mean that. We honor God as we all live in faithful obedience to what God has called us to do. All obedience and faithfulness matters to Christ and all of us who have been faithful to what God has called us in our specific role will hear on the final day, well done, good and faithful servant. It's just, again, we have to remember that not everything is part of this particular task. But even in this mission, we don't all have the exact same role. I do believe we're all called to, to evangelize and to, to tell others about Jesus Christ. But we all don't have the exact same role, and there's other ways that we can be part of this mission, even if you're not the one at the pulpit preaching. Think of a nation at war. There, there's a lot of different roles that go into winning a war. Yes, you need officers and soldiers, but you also need weapons manufacturers, decoders, medics. You need a thriving economy, so there's money to go towards the work. So there's a primary mission, but not everyone is playing the same role. Or think of the image of the church that we find in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, that the church is Christ's body. And Paul is very clear. We're not all the same body parts. In fact, that's why it's a fully functional body. Can't all be eyes, can't all be ears. And so we, we don't worry about, well, I, I want to be a mouth and I'm, I'm just a big toe. Well, without my big toes, I, I wouldn't be able to balance up here to use my mouth. So we have to rejoice in the role God has given us. You didn't determine what part of the body you are. God did. We all have the same spirit, but again, Paul is clear. The spirit doesn't gift and equip us all in the exact same way. Our job is to be faithful with who God made us, to be faithful to the role he has given us, and to be faithful with the gifts he has equipped us with. However, 
This does mean that every single one of us need to have this mission in mind. Of all the other things, good things we are called to do, we cannot neglect this mission. We need to remember what the body has been tasked with. So even as we pray for many things, we ought to be praying for the gospel to spread in Kalamazoo, in Michigan, in the United States, and in the world. As we give and, and spend material resources, we need to do that also with this mission in mind. As we love our neighbor as ourself, as we seek to relieve the suffering of others, we need to remember that the most important suffering that needs to be relieved is spiritual suffering. So we must all be mission-minded and work toward mission completion, even though we don't all have the exact same role. This is how we live in light of the kingdom already come and wait for the kingdom's final completion, which will only happen when the king returns. Because here's something that the disciples got right when they asked him. They said, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Brothers and sisters, there is not one place in the Bible where we are told to build the kingdom. The kingdom is something we receive. The kingdom is something God gives the kingdom is something we enter into. It is not something we build. We tell others about Christ's kingdom. The kingdom he builds. The kingdom he restores. But the good news is that one day it will be completed. It will be fully restored. After Jesus finishes speaking, he is lifted up, he ascends, and they, they don't see him again. Two men in white robes appear. Most think they're angels. They catch the disciples staring at the sky. And so they, they remind the disciples, uh, he's coming back. You, you know that, right? Why do they need to immediately be reminded that the one who left is coming back? They need to be reminded of this because they need a sense of urgency. See, sometimes we wait for the king's return like the disciples just staring up at the sky. Sometimes when I hear people debate their millennial views, I think, guys, stop staring at the sky. We, we've got a mission. We've got a task. So we, we talk about these things in order to help us practically live out the task that the king has given us. But our theology is not for sky gazing. It is for mission completion. So they needed a sense of urgency. I think of when I leave each morning to go to work, and sometimes my, my kids just kind of look out the window. I, I'm very thankful for the time that my kids still love me. They miss me. They want me to come home. So they look out the window. But there are times where I've left and while there's many things they have to do that day, I've given them a specific task. It's usually something like, hey, could you please have your rooms or the basement clean before I get home? And so when Leandra finds the kids staring out the window, she reminds them, uh, Dad, Dad is coming home. He, he's asked you to complete a task. And based on the speed of my kids and their ability to clean, they need to start as soon as I leave if they're going to be done by the time I get home. 
So they needed a sense of urgency. The king has given you a command and the king's coming back. He, he's going to expect us to have done what he told us to do. But they also needed a word of comfort. Because the one they loved, the one they depended on, had just left. They couldn't see him anymore. So the promise was not only an exhortation, it was a comfort. You know he's coming back, right? He's not leaving you forever. He's not leaving you alone. He's going to send his spirit. He will be with you. He will restore the kingdom in full. And in fact, he's left you right now for your good. This is a, a, another thing I, I, I've learned more in my interactions with my kids. Interacting with my kids, I'm pretty sure I've learned more from them how I'm supposed to relate to my father than they've ever learned from me. And again, it, it's that season of life where as I'm leaving, my kids inevitably ask me, when are you coming home? Brielle often asks, is there a specific time so that I know at that clock you're going to be here? And more often than not, I have to tell them, I, I'm not exactly sure when I'm going to be home. And so Talitha will always say, well, are you going to be home soon? And I say, I will be home soon. But it may not feel soon to you. Because as we get older, our sense of time changes, doesn't it? When we're older, we realize a, a few hours, a week, a year, it, it really goes by quickly. But when you're a kid, an hour feels like an eternity. And so, in this way, Jesus has reminded us, I am coming. It will be soon. It may not feel soon. But we do have this comfort and this hope that we can remind ourselves, and Paul says we're supposed to encourage one another with these words, that when we, we feel sad, we can remind ourselves, the king will come. When we're scared, we can remind ourselves, our king will come. When we're discouraged and confused about our own lives, about the world around us, we can comfort ourselves with the remi reminder that our king will come. It is a sure promise. So we may not know everything that we want to know, but Jesus has told us what we need to know. He has told us that he is the king and he is now sitting on his throne. He has told us that his kingdom has come and he will come to complete it. And he has told us what we are supposed to do while we wait for him. And he has given us the power from on high that we need to do what he has called us to do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that it is often very hard to wait. We get confused, we get discouraged, we get afraid. So I pray that you would use this word once again to comfort our souls and to encourage us and strengthen us to not just stare at the sky, but to go into the world to do what you have called us to do. Help us to be faithful to this mission with whatever role you have given to us.
Help us to wait with joy and eager expectation. We thank you that he who went away will come back in the same way. May that day come soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.